1: edition of The Naked Scientists, which is coming to you live from Chicago and the annual meeting of the world's largest scientific society, the AAAS the American Association for the Advancement of Science My name's Chris Smith, otherwise known as The Naked Scientist and we're here at this conference with people from all over the world who are authorities in their own rights and we've been hearing about lots of discoveries and challenges that are going on. Revolutionary new steps were announced in the workings of the human body and modelling that inside a computer We heard about an e-liver for example and an e-brain so in other words a computer that pretends to be a liver or a brain Now, no one mentioned whether either of those things are susceptible to alcohol poisoning unfortunately <laughs> so journalists and politicians are going to have to wait a bit longer before we have a faithful way to predict how your bodies work and respond to alcohol uh, most people watching the news will have also seen the images on television of the uk's really important recent acquisition we have a new inland ocean it's called somerset that's one of our counties Now, meanwhile, um, for those of us who've been here in Chicago, you'll have noticed that it's brutally cold here in the city. And this city has been experiencing its worst winter for decades. Hell, which is... 238 miles to the east of here, according to Google Maps. Uh, that has quite literally frozen over in uh, <laughs> recent weeks. And uh, the temperatures have been dipping as low as minus 25 degrees. To put that into perspective, that's roughly the sort of reception that uh, Barack Obama could expect uh, <laughs> if he went to Iran right now. Mm. Now, the AAAS meeting is, is all about science and innovation. And uh, for this programme, we're joined by uh, you, the audience who are drawn from the conference, and a very warm welcome to you. But also we have five wonderful panellists who I'm going to ask to tell you a bit about themselves and to introduce themselves to you and they will be answering your questions in this session where we're going to look at how science is conveyed to the general public and also talk about some key concepts in
2: science. So first of all, let's hear from our panel. Well, my name's David Willits. I'm the Minister for Universities and Science in Britain. And I'm also a layperson, so I'm one of the people for whom the quality of science communication really matters. And I do notice there are some scientists who are brilliant at explaining what they're doing, so I can kind of understand it. There are others who I find completely incomprehensible.
3: I'm Kathleen Kennedy, and I am from the Cambridge on this side of the pond. Uh, I work at MIT. I am also not a scientist, although I am married to one. And uh, we focus on emerging technologies and their impact.
4: I'm Robin Williams. I've been broadcasting science since 1972 when there were no ATMs, no laptops, no DVDs, no CDs, no mobile phones. But they did do something very old-fashioned in 1972 called Walking on the Moon mm. in May and in December, Apollo 16 and 17. I think Sting S- did that as well, Robin. That's right, yes. Yeah. So I've been <laughs> broadcasting about science and the science show ever since then.
0: And I'm Molly John. I am a professor. I am a scientist. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, so up there in that tundra. And uh, I have held positions in government and also a joint appointment at the Department of Energy's Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Really glad to be here.
5: I'm Mark Abrams. I founded something called the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony 24 years ago. We give prizes for things that make people laugh and then think. Several of the Ig Nobel Prize winners have come to this meeting. I'll mention just one. Chris asked me especially to mention this one. It's part of the team that did an experiment. They took a shrew. You know, a shrew is a small animal about the size of a mouse. They parboiled it and then by hand separated that shrew into chunks and swallowed the chunks, being careful not to chew them. Over the next several days, they carefully collected everything that came out the other end of the person because they wanted to see what bones got destroyed in the human digestive system by the chemicals there and what bones would survive.
1: And what did they find?
5: They found something that shocked them. It went completely against their expectations, that a lot of the large bones get dissolved. They just disappear.
1: Did they not just discover that shrews don't taste very good?
5: You can ask them that tomorrow when you meet them. Please welcome our panel of guests.
1: First of all, though, one of the things that uh, you've been championing, David, while you've been out here, are what you dub the eight great technologies. So, can you just very briefly tell us what those eight great technologies are and
2: what your motivation is for raising them? Right. Chris has asked me to describe eight big general purpose technologies in three minutes. So, here goes. First, I start with high-performance computing and the software you need to set it to work and the big data behind it because that's, the, that's crucial for modern science. Secondly, I turn to space and particularly satellite systems, both as a really efficient way of transmitting data, probably still underappreciated, and uh, also a source of data, notably satellites, images, for example, of floods, in England just recently. Then third on my list of big general purpose technologies was robotics and autonomous systems themselves actually made possible by the advances in very sophisticated uh, software, the different programs you need for all the functions of a robot. We in Britain are quite good at autonomous subsea systems, autonomous planes. They say in future a plane is going to be flown by a man and a dog. The man's job is to feed the dog, and the dog's job is to bite the man if he touches the controls. So those were some kind of dry IT-related science. Then the next technologies are from the life sciences, and, of course, the great discovery of the post-war period is that the key to life comes in digital form. DNA itself is digital, so we're, they say in Cambridge the future is the combination of dry and wet science and technology. So fourth on my list was synthetic biology, Fifth on my list was regenerative medicine, creating the cells that you can use to treat human conditions. I've seen on a Petri dish in an Imperial College heart muscle cells beating like a heart. I asked them, why do they, when do they start beating? Is there a Michelangelo moment when they kind of put an electric charge through? No, just when these cells have grown to a certain critical mass, they start behaving like a heart. The challenge, of course, is to get those in to treat real patients with heart disease, which we're working on. And then six on my list was Agritech, using these advances in understanding genetics as well to uh, breed cattle chickens in Scotland we produce china's chickens every year we send them thousands of the chickens with the best dna we can do and the, then next year we have a new brand of chicken in the last 20 years you get twice as much chicken flesh for a given amount of chicken feed as a result of those advances and the last two on my list were uh, seventh advanced materials where our aerospace industry our car industry and also Uh, in the life sciences as well. People need to understand the composition of materials, and we've got some fantastic instruments at places like Harwell that enable us to do that. And then uh, finally an eighth on my list was energy and energy storage. Here I have just been a day or two ago to the Argonne Labs, uh, just outside Chicago, where they're rising to the challenge of trying to produce a battery within five years that is five times more efficient. We need better energy storage. The lithium-ion battery was discovered in Oxford Over 30 years ago, we haven't really made any massive advances since. We're due for some, and I hope scientists at this great festival this week might be the people who lead the advance on that. There we are. Those are our eight great technologies. David, thank you very much. Uh, Robin, your perspective? Well, first of all, a point
4: about entrepreneurship, which I find rather fascinating. Uh, We mainly think about great entrepreneurs like Steve Jobs. But a point made by Professor Marie... Marie Marianne Matocato who's at the University of Sussex and she specialises in innovation is that if you take Steve Jobs wonderful invention kind of the smartphone all seven technologies and scientific discoveries for that device came from state funded campuses and he put them together it wasn't done in his firm it was done at state funded universities So we need to bear that in mind. But one of the most exciting innovations I've come across in recent times was actually to do with LEDs, the nano part, Minister, of your list. At the University of Edinburgh, they're actually trying to face the problem of how you will deal with the Internet when you've got vast amounts being uploaded all the time, and every 60 minutes you've got 90 hours of video being uploaded every single day. Okay, so soon we're going to run out of radio spectrum. What do you do? In fact, you can do internet communication via the light and LEDs, and that sort of research is being done at the University of Edinburgh and also where I live in Australia at Monash,
1: and also at Cambridge University. Professor Colin Humphreys has invented a new way of making LEDs, and I was gobsmacked to learn that, uh, David, that Britain did not until recently make
2: a single LED. We yeah. imported all of them. And we've now recreated Plessy, and they're making them, mass-producing them down in Plymouth. Yep. Questions from the audience. Where is Secon?
1: Hi, my name is Seacon. Is big data doomed? Have we collected too much to actually sift through the information and make useful connections? And also, how do we communicate big data concepts to the masses? Molly?
0: Well, I'm I'm happy to take that question on. It's obviously a very important question, particularly in this country, um, with respect to about uh, the opportunities and sensitivities that come with vast amounts of information. And Robin's just mentioned the degree to which that information piles up. Um, have we collected too much information? That's that's one version of the question. But another question I think is even more important is: Are we collecting the right information? Mm-hmm to steer our systems towards more resilience and out of risky, scary places, which, whether you're in the U.K. floating away or in Australia burning up or a couple hours of north of here freezing or in Alaska really hot or Sochi, um, we have made some, some major changes on this planet. And I would argue we don't know enough about that, nor have we thought about the ways in which those eight technologies and a number of others can converge to the mechanisms by which we create change, support change, towards safer
3: places for all human beings on Earth
0: Kathleen and know Kennedy. that we've done it. Kathleen Chris, Kennedy. I'd love
3: to add to that. I, th- I was just in Singapore two weeks ago and moderated a panel uh, on it. One was the chief scientist from Facebook who has now actually moved over to New York and is applying a lot of the big data knowledge that they had at Facebook to life sciences now, and Jeff Hammerbach, he's now at uh, Beth Ezreal, and building a lab there, applying that. And I think I would say the answer is I don't think we're doomed at all. I think it's just very much early days. And there are a lot of things that we need to deal with, but I think there's a lot of exciting things ahead of us in the world of big data that's going to impact our lives. And tools such as visualization, which synthesize oh, yeah. and allow us to explore the
0: frontiers, the big data that big data create for. There's
5: another aspect of it. There's a problem with big data, even with not-so-big data. When you get lots of this stuff, how do you see what's there? How do you see what pattern's there? And especially what people often are interested in is they think they understand what this data describes, but they really need to know what's unusual. What is there some scary pattern or something? There is a tool that was invented about 40 years ago that almost nobody knows about, invented by a statistics professor at Harvard named Herman Chernoff. It's called Chernoff Faces. And he realized that most people are very good at recognizing different human faces, which have enormous amounts of detail that are only slightly different. So what he did was take any set of data, any collection of big data – you know, tax rates, death rates, all these things. And each of the kinds of data, he will instead um, have it show up in a diagram as one aspect of a face. Maybe the width of the mouth, mouth, uh, another, you know, the tax rate might be the length of the nose, length of the hair, things like that. You can have as many as you want. And he discovered that people can spot patterns really easily you do this this was back about 1970 and the reason or one reason it didn't take off was he wrote a paper and the last thing he says in the paper was I did this uh, using this particular computer model uh, it's very expensive to print out even one face but I think that in the future the the price of printing something might come
2: down <laughs> David Willis. Yeah, I agree. that the I, I think big data is very significant, and I absolutely agree with what's just been said. The challenge is identifying patterns, and we will need very smart software to identify patterns. Uh, isn't there a scientist, I think, in, in Israel, who already just took all the data that was available on people who had suffered a particular form of cancer and identified using that some of the underlying patterns that helped him to identify the genetic code that particularly triggered it? So I'm an optimist about what it can do what we have to do in public policy is ensure that the data that is publicly financed think of all the health Mm. data that is emerges from publicly financed medical research in the countries represented around this room today imagine that future researchers had all that in machine readable form so you could harness that big data to do more research that's the kind of thing which i think we need to do
1: um, hi, my name is Brooke, and my question is in a little bit of a different vein. I was curious, especially with funding for science getting cut so much, how do governments decide
0: which projects to fund?
1: Molly, let's hear about the American story first, and then we can ask David for the U.K. perspective.
0: Well, our, the science community has clearly defended its ability to um, to make decisions about funding um, grant proposals in particular defending the objectivity and integrity of that process ferociously and it's critically important and we are seeing right now a tendency in our legislative branch to scrutinize that, those processes and intervene and I think there's a tremendous danger there um, science investments um, are clearly um, unpredictable clearly incredibly catalytic powerful forms of investment And um, in a global world, um, I think there's tremendous opportunity to synthesize across national boundaries. But um, I worry considerably about the reductions or at least flat Federal, federal investment in this country. And I have to specifically commend Minister Willets for his defense of research investments in the U.K., where I think um, both the science investment per se and the nexus between policy and science is really exemplary in a, in a global sense, one that I envy in a number of respects. So I think um, recognizing the, the critical public good in research and in science and in knowledge transfer um, is is an insight that we have lost track of to some extent in this country. And um, the transparency that science creates is, is very, very important, especially in a democratic
3: society.
1: Kathleen, you were nodding just then.
3: Well, I, I feel like I'm in a lot of conversations around the world where you're looking at uh, the U.S. system and people are questioning it and thinking about in places like Russia and and China, where it's more of a command com- economy, how they're able to all work towards solving one problem rapidly. And that there's, there's an interesting, I think, debate going on. And Chris told us that we wanted to introduce some concepts around debate. But I, I think it's a very interesting debate that I'd, I'd love to throw out to the panel on, on talking about sort of a, a, com- a command economy and a top-down strategy versus more of the strategy like we have in the U.S., and um, in Europe on how is funded.
1: Robin, what do you think the role of the media is in connecting these things together?
4: Well, the media tend to beat up promises. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be an absolute fantastic breakthrough, and you, you virtually ring the bells about how this fantastic change is going to happen. We, di- we usually say five, ten years' time. And what worries me is that while you're doing that, you're disguising the fact that it stops start funding a lot of the time. I'm thinking of the you know, the, the, the hole they dug in the United States for the superconductor supercollider, a $2 billion hole, and then they changed their minds for bizarre reasons. This is an equivalent to CERN. And, of course, the hole is still there. I think they use, use it to grow mushrooms or something. Now, this is all very well for big infrastructure, big science. I'm concerned about what we do in the media, promoting science so that young people think, "Okay, I'm going to commit my life to doing this. They don't necessarily have to take a scientific career, but at least commit many years, sometimes up to the age of, what, 28, to studying, preparing themselves for a career that's connected to science. And then the bottom falls out of the market. Someone cuts the budget, and these young people are stranded. I meet so many of them, and I think we, in whichever country that happens, it's a disgrace.
1: And David Willits, how does Britain decide what you're going to put your money into in terms of funding research?
2: Yeah, and what, we, what we've been able to do in Britain is we've got a protected flat cash budget of £4.6 billion pounds a year, and that at least... We set it out in 2010, and we're delivering it year on year to 2015. So it's tough, but it's also predictable and stable, and there's been no messing about.
1: Can we just ask, for the purposes of comparison, how does £4.6 billion compare with what this
2: country, America, spends on science? In the US, which is on a slightly different definition, because it includes capital and things, you're talking more like $25, $30 billion. So it is a fifth, a sixth of what happens in the US. But we've been able to add to it now... Again, on a secured long-term basis, uh, a billion pounds a year of capital investment, year after year through to 2020. So how do you decide what to spend it on? And on that, the, the, the role of the science minister is rightly very limited. It would not be right for me to say we should fund Project X but not Project Y. Those decisions are taken within the scientific community by peer review. And I think one reason why British science is pretty good is that the science minister has very little to do with those sort of decisions. But what we can do is decide broad priorities. And one thing that we've been able to, despite only being a medium-sized economy, is, for example, keep a broad base where we keep our funding on humanities and social sciences alongside physical sciences and medical sciences. I wouldn't want to uh, cut one at the expense of the other. What we're now doing is consulting the community on big decisions on capital, which will ultimately be for ministers. So when we spend this billion pounds a year of capital out to 2020, are there some really big projects that we could do And are there international partners with whom we could do them? So those big type of questions do come to ministers. But after we've decided how much the budget is for research councils, and I've kept the balance broadly unchanged, after that, within the research councils, what they spend the money on comes from the science community themselves. And I think that's the right way to do it.
1: Let's start looking at how we actually attract people into science for a little bit.
3: Hi, my name's Julia. My question is, how do you communicate the benefits of emerging technologies like robotics when we don't fully understand what they'll be used for and how they'll work yet?
1: Molly, what do you think?
0: Well, one, one uh, place for advocacy that I think in this country we, we have often overlooked is the private sector because where these technologies have specific benefits, there are very smart people watching that horizon for a living. And so ensuring that we have... Um, Good quality interfaces there where, where that pre-competitive investment, where exactly that sits and what it is, snaps onto competitive space is a really powerful um, model. I learned from the Dutch, actually. They call it the polder strategy, um, something they have some experience with in terms of building common space to keep something bad out or grab something good. Um, so I would say that's one specific tactic I see more and more our diverse sectors banding together to explore potential. And, and, of course, it's the technologies, but also their intersections that are really, really exciting and, uh, and really important, both in, off, in offensive, opportun- you know, focusing on opportunities, but also in defensive ways, because we've got some significant challenges ahead if we're committed to using science and technology to care for our home and care for our kind.
5: Mark, there must have been some ignoble moments relevant to... (laughs) To attracting people to science? Well, I I think doing odd things, I think, attracts people. There was a television program called Star Trek. (laughs) And if you talk to... uh, I don't think this is much of an exaggeration. Pretty much any living scientist under the age of, say, 60, um, they will start telling you stories about how watching that as a kid ended up not only pushing them pulling them inspiring them whatever to go and get involved in science but if you listen to them long enough they will some of them tell you stories about how the thing they invented which ended up changing the world a little bit it really was just a twisted version of the thing in episode 27 da, 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 da. so these things that seem kind of silly and are kind of silly Star Trek and and movies and TV shows and novels and things, they're also pretty powerful. And they're pretty powerful in ways that um, you you can either tell people in a million words that they are powerful and why they're powerful, or you can just look at the faces of people who are affected by them.
1: And Robin Williams, when you were not busy on the set of Doctor Who and Monty Python, were you watching Star Trek?
4: Yeah, I was watching Star Trek. um, Not as much as some of the other
5: You're
1: not not under 60. I don't think we want to cover those films.
4: (laughs) (laughs) No, but that is the imaginative display of of the future. And as a science fiction, reading books, wonderful books with all sorts of imagination, from Jules Verne on to the most modern stuff. It's all there. And uh, I really do think that uh, making more of really what you can visualize, imagine, as well as put in the public place. I would like to see places where, like uh, the A's to some extent, we've got uh, science on display, but people could play with it and see the robots, the gadgets of the future and what they might do and, and experience them instead of having them remote and so far away that it's not part of their lives. Star Trek fan, David Willits?
2: Yeah, and Star Trek is a great example because I remember watching it as a boy when people just used to walk up to those glass doors in the spaceship, and the glass doors parted. There was no technology oh, but you that made that. You've forgotten possible. the fancy noise that it? was. There was yeah, a whooshing yeah. sound. Yeah, was that was noise. two stage hands pulling on ropes on either side <laughs> to open the doors. Now, the David, I the understand occ- there
5: are buildings in the British government that still use
2: that. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? But you see, now, now, within, now everybody's used to that, thing, and, and, and a young person watching that wouldn't realize that that was, when it was first shown ahead of what was technologically possible. What I ask as a layman is I say to the biologists, when are we going to have that device that Scotty had to work out what you were suffering from by pointing his kind of sensor at you? And he used to run it up and down, and then you'd, you'd know what your medical status was. And the experts tell me we're about 25 years off that, but they think we will get there. Mm. And if you read Isaac Asimov, if you, if you read... Um, It's amazing some of the things. Marshall McLuhan talking about envisaging a day when he would basically be on the internet. He wrote that in the 1960s. So I think science fiction can set challenges and use its imagination to set challenges that then scientists rise to.
4: Yes, I think you'll find that the cosmic screwdriver screw is only two years away. <laughs> <laughs> and
5: Chris I Rick, have to yeah. just
0: Can I just say, I yeah. just have to stress, robotics is a great example where, where opportunities at the middle and high school level have opened up incredible frontiers for students, some of whom might have this passion anyway and many of whom would not. And clearly that level of exposure at that time as people are setting their courses is, is a very important and exciting way to highlight the, the relevance and, and opportunity in this space and the need to work together.
3: Yeah, I think Dean Kamen's project with FIRST Robotics is very interesting on getting um, kids involved in robotics. And, and his, his point on that is that he wanted to create basically the NBA of, of science geeks and using robotics like uh, kids aspire to be an NBA star, to be a FIRST star.
6: Joel Werner, science journalist. Um, Like most good ideas at this conference, this question came from some spirited drinks had after the session yesterday. (laughs) Climate deniers often use the tools of propaganda to further their campaign. Should science be embracing these similar tools?
5: Or propaganda.
6: Yeah.
5: Propaganda and lies, that's what you're asking? (laughs) Maybe
6: not lies, because that goes against the whole principle of science, I guess, but maybe propaganda.
5: Mark? Huh. It's difficult. Arguments between somebody who wants to discuss whatever the topic is and somebody who simply wants to um, stick their foot out and trip the other person, are they're not fair fights in either direction. Does anybody here have any any... Guidance for anybody in dealing with that? I,
3: I, I, I've been doing a lot of work in Russia lately. I was actually in Moscow four weeks ago, I think. And it's interesting, this propaganda question that there's, there's in a society like that, there is still this idea of – I'm in meetings, and often they talk about this you know, science innovation policy that they're trying to build, that we should just do that in the innovation markets. And they, they sort of talk about that if they talk about it enough, things will happen. And it's such a counter thinking to how how science and technology is is done here and in the UK, I'm sure, in that it's 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 very much a bottom up type thing. And I think propaganda is about being a top down methodology. And so I, I think that there are certainly places in the world that are trying to do that and they think if they push it down enough that it will happen. And and my thinking is is that that I see the way science works here, and I don't know that it seems to me counter the way that science actually happens.
2: David? Yes, I I think it would be dangerous to get into propaganda, because the origins of propaganda was propagating the faith, and science has to be a rational and sceptical inquiry. I think the problem with the climate change deniers is that they've taken one of the tools of science, which is scepticism, and taking it to such an extreme, it's become a new form of kind of irrationality. And I think where science has to get it right is, is ju- how much skept- how sceptical you can be. And the, it comes point you say, if you're being asked to believe that almost all major Western scientists and researchers working in this discipline are engaged in a kind of organised conspiracy, at that point, calling it scepticism doesn't capture the, the the sort of irrationality of it. So. Yeah. I think getting the balance, getting scepticism right is the best approach. Well, right? Rather than going for the tools of propaganda. It
4: just so happens I did my programme, The Science Show, for the first one in August 1975. And one of the guests was Lord Ritchie Calder. And he happened to be talking about the energy crisis then in, back in <laughs> 1975. And uh, he said, amongst other things, we've been so concerned about the use of oil and coal and fossil fuels that this is going to change the atmosphere and affect the climate drastically. And we've been talking about this since 1961, and here we are in 75, and no one's done anything yet. Which, you know, was, (laughs) when I heard it back, rather chilling. But I think what has been shown by Naomi Oreskes, who was at San Diego and is now at Harvard, in her book, Merchants of Doubt, as Mark said, what one side is using is rational argument, and trying to get the information over, and it's complex. And when there's something that knocks their ideas, they write a 20-page article which is published in one of the journals, which their mates read. And on the other side, the people who are knocking climate science are using all the techniques of advertising, of propaganda, and the sowing of doubt. And Naomi Oreskes is citing the tobacco companies who, for 40 years or more were trying to say that cigarettes may be okay, there is doubt about the science. So it's unequal, and I think it's time the scientists really got up, didn't use propaganda, but used short, sharp sentences and fought equally. And stun guns might help as well. (laughs) (laughs) Next question. Can I I just
0: say there's a very exciting opportunity, I think, for science to deliver into this conversation, which is to step over the squabble about is it or isn't it. That's clearly a very important debate, But science actually isn't about propaganda. It's about informing important things that human beings do every day. And there's terrible risk now that is borne by very powerful people who can't yet fully quantify or reflect that risk. And one of the very exciting um, areas of convergence I see, and again, the UK is very central to this, is it's not just science and policy, but science, policy, and capital, particularly capital that underwrites risky, dangerous practices, and capital that may enable the delivery of the benefits of these technologies and innovations towards the the very real dangers that are borne by all, not just scientists and not just those seeding the doubts.
3: My name's Dara. Uh, We heard at a talk this morning that only one-third of the American public believes humans evolved through entirely natural causes. So my question is, how do we move forward in communicating science to a public who still questions its most basic foundations?
5: Are you talking about unnatural sex?
3: (laughs) Well, the approach that we take around talking about science is is talking about it from the perspective of how is technology and science solving problems. So we start with talking about framing the problem, what is the problem, and then talking about the different areas of science and technology that are solving that problem. So the, I think it's, it's, you want to be able to appeal to people on a very personal level of that they're seeing these problems in their lives and they're think, worrying about it for you know, their children's world and then thinking about how science are solving them.
5: One question related to that is what does it matter? There mm, are so be. many different things in the world to pay attention to or not. Uh, just look around you when you're sitting in an almost empty room, and you could spend all day describing all the things you see. So one quest, this question of where did human beings come from, it is very important, but at the same time, it's maybe also completely unimportant to most people most of the time in their daily lives. So they happen to believe something that pretty certainly is completely untrue, but what effect does that have? So Robin Williams, most people, to most people it
1: doesn't matter most of the time where we all came from. Agree? <laughs> no, not good.
5: Uh, I didn't say good <laughs> or bad, I just said what does it actually matter practically day to day for most people?
4: No, ignorance, uh, well, th- the figures for the rejection of Darwin and evolutionary theory, I thought were something like in Australia about 30% of the population doesn't agree with Darwin's ideas. And I thought it was more like over half in the United States. Mind you, you're probably talking directly more about reproduction of human beings. But I think one way to do something about it is actually happening at this very conference and the people from science and education. Eugenie Scott is one of my heroes who has been trying to show how you should free up education in the United States Mm -hmm. so that you can actually teach Darwin's ideas freely and exchange these ideas without the impediment of that kind of restriction which apparently exists in many states. And that sort of thing will change the way these ideas are discussed very quickly. And, David, have we had discussions in the British government about
2: the issue of, of evolution and creationism? Um, it's come up a bit in education politics. I think where you, where you are in schools really matters. And there we have to just draw the line very clearly that there is science... And kids who go to science lessons are entitled to be taught science. And people who have a set of religious beliefs are entitled to have those religious beliefs communicated in lessons to do with religion. But what you can't do is have your religious beliefs taught as if they're somehow science. That is the boundary, I think, that we need to set in the approach to education. And that, after all, was famously fought out in that court case here in the US in the uh, 1920s. And it's a bit frustrating that those battles still keep on going on. But again, I think where scientists get sometimes make a, a rod for their own bats is that sometimes evolution is described as a theory. And... When scientists use the word theory, it's, it's, when you say theory, it doesn't mean it's some kind of abstract idea that you know, may or may not be the case. It's like saying gravity is a theory. It is an account of reality. And sometimes the word theory is used, like the word scepticism, to erode what seems to be a settled and empirical observation about the way the world works.
1: Imran Khan.
6: First of all, my inner Trekkie will never forgive me if I don't point out that it's actually Bones, not Scotty. I have a medical tricorder. Uh. order. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That is a proper trekking. <laughs>
6: but it did make me think about the tricorder and you know, what would happen if we invented it and, and used it and who would get, get to benefit from it. And it reminded me of a quote um, from Bill Gates who said that at the moment, globally, we spend more research on male pattern baldness than we do on malaria. And some members yeah. of the panel might have a different perspective yes, on this. What's wrong with that, then? <laughs> 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 but, it, but it does give you pause for thought. You know, do you, are we, as a, as, a, as a nation, are we as countries like the UK and the US not doing enough to reverse global inequalities? In fact, are the, are the technologies we're researching and prioritizing going to deepen global inequality rather than reduce it? And what should we, as people attending this conference, do about that? What do you think, Molly?
0: Um, I think it's a really important question for this century, right? And I will say that as a science community, we don't even know how to characterize global inequality beyond economics. And I would argue there's a great deal more for us to learn about that. One of the exciting things I see is a recognition of the fact that inequality as a characteristic of human systems is extremely important beyond doing the right thing. For example, inequality tracks poverty. It tracks um, civil instability attracts a lot of things that, that are of concern to very powerful players. And and I find that, if this gets back to the big data question, being able to scan for patterns that relate to outcomes in human dimensions of our choices in science and technology, what innovations do we take to systems, especially vulnerable people? And how do those innovations actually change the condition of people in vulnerable people in vulnerable places, which will be more and more of us, by the way, um, including the UK right now. <laughs> um, and, and I think learning to, how to ask and answer those questions is critically important. I'm going to argue we need new taxonomies of the way human environmental systems work. So we're really in some sense at a, in a very primitive stage of development of this kind of science, with all due respect to any economists in the room. If we really care about again steering our our global system towards safer places,
1: do you agree, Kathleen?
3: I do. We write a lot about different technologies that are being evolved in in Africa. There's actually a lot of interesting things that are developing there locally, and I. But I, I agree on the sort of employing big data to understand the patterns and. I, I can't talk enough about data visualization. It, we were really geeking out on it before, the, t- before the, uh, this, this talk because it's such an interesting area of people being able to understand what those patterns are and what the implications are. So, yeah, unfortunately then, on this one, I agree. And the democratization of that capability
0: is really incredibly important and exciting and has a, some very significant perils as well with respect to privacy and vulnerability. Yeah. Where is the good land in Africa? Hmm. Important question.
4: Yeah. Bjorn Lomborg sometimes make the interesting point about how much we can get for our money by tackling climate change for billions versus uh, maybe cleaning up the air. Now, it just so happens that uh, someone I know quite well, Jeremy Leggett, who's involved with uh, Solar Century, has been trying to tackle the problem of kerosene lamps in the tiny huts in all sorts of millions of homes in South America and in Africa. And what they do is they developed a solar lamp which costs about six bucks to make, and it can be the basis of a village economy. They can you know, develop it themselves. And uh, I just read the other day that a million of these lamps have been distributed through Africa. And this, I think, is a superb achievement, and it shows you how, in fact, you can tackle the big stuff that you mustn't, you know, I would disagree with Bjorn Lomborg. It's not one or the other. But this is a line where you can show experimentally how you can uh, develop an economy that the village can depend on. It's simple technology which will make a vast difference because 2 million people a year die from the fumes of that kerosene.
1: I think it's also worth bearing in mind that something like 5,000 people per day are dying just through lack of access to clean water, which I'd argue is, is even worse isn't it, as a fundamental, probably one of the most abundant molecules on
5: earth. You're you're nodding, Molly.
0: I am, and it comes back to your your point about inequity. Absolutely. Mm.
5: Another thing about that, too, is, uh, and Africa's a good example, places where there are certain kinds of chronic disease, malaria being maybe the biggest, it affects a huge number of people, almost exactly are the same areas where there is unending poverty. It's Because it seems that uh, so many of the people spend most of their life just in terrible shape from this disease. If they weren't doing that, they would be a lot more vigorous, a lot more everything, and uh, a much smaller... Chunk of all of the resources food money, electricity, whatever would have to uh, would be able they 'd be freed up to do the things that we do here in America and Britain, and places where we don 't have millions of people who are spending their lives suffering from this horrible disease every moment
2: I think this is where there is there are real things that scientific advances can do, and we shouldn 't forget the The state of the debate about GM crops in Europe, which is very different from here in the US, and if you're looking to do something that would really help Africa feed themselves and tackle some of the uh, illnesses and diseases affecting kids, um, then GM crops is crucial. And if Europe continues to send out this rhetoric that GM crops are somehow bad and dangerous... And that has an influence on policymakers in Africa so that they do not feel that they can plant or use the drought-resistant wheat that is being developed by GM technologies. And that is something that is going to cost tens of thousands of lives. So we should never forget the the real-world consequences of some of these decisions taken in political environments um, around the world. What about the question, and this is for everybody to
1: consider that when we spend the $10 billion it costs to make a new drug in a Western country, most of that price being regulation, because the, the test tube time to patient time for any agent is 10 years and $10 billion, give or take, unless it's a dirt-cheap agent and you're not sure you want it anyway, if that's the case. Those drug companies have got to make that investment. It's a risky investment, and they've got to recoup. So we're sort of struggling with the problem that we've got to invest in making the agent and underwriting the risk. But then equally, if we can't recoup because we want to give it away to people in Africa to use, then we have a serious problem on our hands, don't we? Because we can't recoup. So how do we incentivise companies? Perhaps, David, you could kick off. Yeah, how I do we incentivize where, them to address yeah, this?
2: I think that's where the, the life sciences industry has made a lot of progress in the past ten or 20 years. And, and I, my, my view is there is a, a clear obligation on us in the advanced West to pay for our drugs at rates that support the R&D that's necessary and the drugs industries themselves are then under a reciprocal obligation to ensure that those are available at much lower prices in poorer countries and if you look at the way in which HIV drugs are are now accessible across um, Africa at much lower prices I think there's been a real advance there and again sometimes this research goes directly Sometimes these advances in science that people are nervous about have a direct impact. I mean, again, I'm a layman, but my understanding is one of the most significant advances of synthetic biology, one of the first cases has been the production of Artemisian, which is in turn very crucial for the treating of malaria. So some of these really significant scientific advances that people are wary about in the West actually are a direct benefit for some of the poorest uh, people on the globe. Molly?
0: And I think this is a great example where monitoring interactions between interventions is really important because I can tell you in some places some part of the reason malaria has been difficult to eradicate is we've been busy on the agricultural research side impounding Mm -hmm. water which creates a terrific place for mosquitoes to breed and it was the interaction between the agricultural intervention which is really laudable and noteworthy and the health consequences was detected only by scanning for patterns and and not you'd like to think in some sense originally by common sense and and uh, so just mm-hmm. tracking the the outcomes that matter to us in human dimensions Challenging The assumptions we've made as we deliver those innovations um, at scale is a really important capability. It's a scientific frontier, no question, um, with respect to scaling and interactions and analytics um, and satellites and space and um, a number of the things that were on Minister Willett's list.
2: Hi, my name is Steve. I'm,
5: I'm struck with the panel's emphasis on the parts of science that affect technology and medicine, There's also the part of science that, so to speak, is curiosity-driven with no clear application at any given time other than the wonder and the adventure of the pursuit. Could the the panel comment on how we might encourage children or young people to pursue those parts of science? Robin,
1: does the science show encourage children to take up science or does it probably put them off forever?
4: (laughs) (laughs) No, no. one of the things that we do, I do two programs a week and uh, one of them is got an old-fashioned title called Occam's Razor and that's a, a, a scripted talk. You know, Every week someone does what's become known as a blog and the public talks to the public. But each week as well I put on a PhD student and I was stunned when I got a, a letter two weeks ago from university in Melbourne, La Trobe University, saying how moved they were to be broadcast because they didn't think anyone in the public would be interested in what they did. Now, what they talk about is enthusiastic, it's it's clear, it's hoping to change the world, and the way you get other young people to realise this and respond to it is to have them on, to have them there. And I got one note, actually, it was actually a, a AAAS. I interviewed a PhD student who was studying... Seagrasses in Kuwait. She was from Kuwait. She was studying, actually, in Vancouver and in Canada. And I broadcast her enthusiasm and what she was doing and various things like these seagrasses absorb more CO2 than rainforests. Next thing I get an email from a 14-year-old New Zealand kid who's somewhere in the Gulf who said he was listening to a little old Australian science show. And he's got his mates together and they're now going to study seagrasses in the Gulf. And they'll let me know how they get on. That is how you do it. You start a trend, you put them on, and the rest happens.
0: I'm so glad you raised this point because um, knowledge for knowledge's sake is, is a really, you know, it's a, it's a joy of being human. Absolutely. And that passion is a really important part of the science community. And, and I was just part of a dinner in London a couple of weeks ago where, there, where one of my colleagues, very distinguished scientist focused on photosynthesis, another person said, oh, it's so wonderful that in the UK, everybody's asked to justify the the grant they just got in terms of practical impacts. And my friend turned and said, that is an awful thing, because it forces scientists to tell stories that really, on some level, are ad hoc stick it on the back, because I have to tell somebody why I'm doing this, when the real story is I love it, and it's really important. And this particular person, he says, does happen to work on the most important enzyme in the world. <laughs> but that's not why he works on it. He works on it because he loves it. And being honest about that removes the danger of hype. And then, of course, if you've told that story, you better give some story about how you did what you said you were going to do. And it drives us a number of very pernicious dynamics with respect to the overselling of public science.
1: One of the things that we found with the Naked scientists was that actually... Science with a sense of humor is yes. yes, incredibly important, and I think the Ig Nobels mark hmm. really panders to that. Do you find that you attract young people more than you would?
5: Yeah, I, I hesitate to say in public that I think we do any good, but um... <laughs> <laughs> improbable. But I think maybe we do. It's you know our our whole little mantra is things that make people laugh and then think. Hmm. And when people find things funny, the kind of things we collect that tend to be about Mm -hmm. science, that what's really funny about them to almost everybody is they deal with something you've never had any reason to think about. It's just so completely foreign. It's beyond foreign. (laughs) It's crazy. It's funny. And so your first immediate reaction is (laughs) to laugh, but then it sticks in your head. And a week later... You're asking questions, but more than that, all you really want to do is turn to your friend and tell your friend about it and get into an argument. That's the kind of stuff that we're doing. I kind of think I shouldn't be saying even this much because... I'm sort of saying this might be good for you. And nobody Mark, just, just, remember, <laughs> just, just
1: educate the audience what the best cure for hiccups is, according to... Yeah, for, uh, this... Oh. I,
5: okay, I make no, no um, claims as to the importance of this, and it deals with medicine. And um, there's a touch of sadness in this. Two weeks ago, uh, a doctor died, somebody who had won an Ig Nobel Prize. I, I just read about it. Uh, his name is Dr. Francis Fezmeyer. He's from Tennessee. About eight years ago, we gave him the Ig Nobel Prize for Medicine. Uh, He wrote a a paper about what he did in a medical journal. Uh, He came up with the first reliable cure for an ailment known as intractable hiccups. Intractable hiccups is the kind of hiccups that goes on not just for minutes or hours, but for days, weeks, months. And nobody's ever been able to figure out how to stop that reliably until Dr. Francis Fesmeyer did. His method he calls digital Rectal Massage (laughs) Does anyone have hiccups? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, when he came to the ceremony he gave a, a little one minute acceptance speech and then we had a demonstration on stage which we had to call off at the last minute and after he published his paper other doctors read some of these medical <laughs> journals anyway, and some doctors in Israel read this, and they had a case of intractable hiccups, so they decided to try Dr. Fezmeyer's method, and it worked. So they published their own paper, and they ended up sharing the Ig Nobel Prize too. Robin.
4: Well. <laughs> <laughs> I'll
5: try to control my
4: diaphragm. but <laughs> As well as your bowels. Yeah, well. your anyway. hiccups. My example goes back to the big data problem. And, of course, having too much data is is something that's hitting all aspects of science. And uh, one way to solve the problem is to go to the public. And this has been done with Galaxy Zoo, where someone had, I think it was a million different galaxies that had to be categorised and he just went almost blind after a week not being able to do it and they thought well, why don't I put these on the internet and ask the public to join in and uh, someone said uh, the server nearly melted and there are other examples of this such as in Tasmania where they have Red Map where you take a picture to see whether certain organisms have moved further south or north than they normally are and showing that climate change is biting. Now, this was mentioned in uh, a programme series on the BBC and the ABC by Lisa Jardine called The Seven Ages of Science. And in the last episode, Lord Krebs, John Krebs from Oxford, said, we've been doing this in environmental science forever because you need to track, say, where the birds are and how many of the population have changed and various other animals as well. So that public science can enlist six-year-olds... Or 90 year olds, and they're working together fabulously, and they're part of science, real science, and it makes all the difference.
0: I got an email a couple weeks ago that said Dear Dr. John, I need to um, tell you, I need to ask you some questions about genetics can I call you? And I assumed, this this connects to what Robin just said, I assumed it was one of our undergraduates who hadn't learned proper email etiquette. So I wrote back, and I said, um, Dear Sophie, I I assume you're in University of Wisconsin, Madison, undergrad, and when you write somebody, you know, with requesting time, it would be good if you would explain what your project is and who you are and what you're doing. Well, Sophie was a sixth grader, oh. <laughs> and Sophie had been handed an iPod, and Sophie had been involved in projects like this through her school, and Sophie got really interested in genetics and wrote me, so, so I wrote back and said, I, I got this lovely email, did an interview, and then I got an email from her mother. And she said, well, when I asked Sophie why she didn't introduce herself properly, she said, I've always been told I shouldn't share personal information over the
5: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: So that's a frontier I'm excited about exploring.
1: And after she got Molly's reply, Sophie's now in therapy.
0: <laughs> now, now we had a um, so wonderful we,
1: we're, interview. We're running out of time. So just some, some thoughts, closing thoughts from, from you, Kathleen.
3: Sure, I think i 've been looking over your shoulder, hoping that we would get to this one question about 3D printing, which was invented at MIT and one of my favorite topics. but uh, also, I think the advent of 4D printing, which is which is new and, and very exciting and seeing how it It sounds applied. like the history
5: of razor blades where they keep adding one more blade I, I know exactly
3: <laughs> and uh, but the 4D is time, and sort of there 's a lot of interesting applications with that. So uh, across multiple areas of science. So that would, I would be a p- parting thing to keep your eye on.
2: Last word to David Willis. Well, it, in this question about how we interest children in science, I think the evidence is that there's two things above all that get them interested, dinosaurs and mm. space. Yes. And, yes. Yeah, and the number of scientists I meet who are now biochemists or whatever, but they said it was initially astronomy or the Apollo moon missions or something like that that got them interested. And we're fortunate, Britain, we're going to have, in Tim Peake, we're going to have our first major astronaut on the space station next year, and we're going to use that as a great opportunity to communicate the excitement of science around the schools and school kids of Britain. And have you're going you to send a dinosaur into space. <laughs> have, <laughs> he, the next
1: time. have you got him learning David Bowie numbers already? <laughs> yes, it's, it's Major Tim. LAUGHTER <laughs> <laughs> We have run out of time. Please join me in thanking our panel, who are David Willits, Kathleen Kennedy, Robin Williams, Molly Jan, and Mark Abrahams. My name's Chris Smith. You've been listening to a very special edition of The Naked Scientists, recorded live here in Chicago at the AAAS. We're very grateful to the Science and Innovation Network here in Chicago, and specifically Jack Westwood and also Kerry Norton, who've been tremendous and and also instrumental in helping us to set up this thing. I hope you've all enjoyed it, and thank you very much, Kate, for doing sound, and Howard Benson, who's also been absolutely fantastic, recording and helping to put this event on. We're really grateful. Goodbye.
4: Thank you.